Open your Bibles, if you would, uh, today to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. We have been going through the Heidelberg Catechism, uh, mainly uh, Pastor Ragusa up to this point. But having finished the Canons of Dort, I also uh, return to join him in going through the Catechism. We are in the third section of the Heidelberg Catechism. What are the three parts of the Heidelberg Catechism? All right. One person. Nobody? What's the first part? Huh? Guilt, grace, gratitude. All right. Sin, salvation, service. Misery, deliverance, gratitude. However you may remember it. Remember, that's the outline of the book of Romans from which the outline of the catechism is taken. And we are in the third section of the Heidelberg Catechism, how we are to thank God for delivering us from sin and misery. And just prior to reading Ephesians, want to look at uh, the catechism's lesson for today. It's Lord's Day 33 on page 888. If you care uh, to follow along, I'm going to ask you to recite the answer, so you may want to turn there. Page 888, in the back of the hymnal, Lord's Day 33, the left-hand column. All right, last week we looked at uh, why must we still do good works, and uh, today, what is involved in genuine repentance or conversion? Two things. And what is the dying away of the old self? And what is the rising to life of the new self? And what are good works? good. Cornelius Van Til wrote a whole uh, book on Christian theistic ethics based on that question and answer of the Heidelberg Catechism. And uh, John Frame kind of picked that up as well, but that's for another time. Uh, All right, now in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 22, begin in verse 20. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Three points to the sermon this morning. on conversion. First of all, Christ, conversion, and character. Christ, conversion, and character. The church today is distinctly lacking in the abundant life that Jesus said he came to give us. He said, I come to give you life and that more abundantly, and yet we're lacking in it. 
Christians' lives are more often than not resemble leaky faucets rather than rivers of living waters, more likely uh, resemble deserts rather than blossoming gardens of righteousness and holiness filled with the fruit of the Spirit. The lives of great Christian men and women uh, with great spiritual stature no longer promote imitation but intimidation as we compare ourselves to them. No, we must be honest. Christian living today is distinctly shallow, and we stand in desperate need of renewal. And to be sure, the Bible presents us with a picture of the Christian life that is abundant and dynamic, the key to which is found in these verses, Ephesians 4, verses 22 through 24. That dynamic is called conversion. But first, Christ. If you look at verse 20 and 21, which, with which we began our reading, all right, um, Paul asserts that Christians are already in a personal living relationship with Jesus Christ. That is not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. That foundation, all right, that Paul mentions here is a vital union with the risen and exalted Lord of glory. Look back at chapter 2, for example. Uh, refresh your memories. It's been a while since uh, in Ephesians we've been in uh, chapter 2. Uh, beginning in verse 3, Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Those who are not in a living, vital, personal relationship with Jesus Christ, those who are outside of Christ, those who are unbelieving, all right, those who are not Christians, if you will, all right, are children of wrath and are under the wrath of God for their unbelief and disobedience. But Paul says that's not true of Christians. He says, but God, verse 4, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Jesus Christ. Paul says, for the Christian, God has made alive those who were dead in transgressions and sins. He has raised them up to be united with Jesus Christ, all right, the exalted Lord, um, and says that he has implanted or instilled in the believer not only that he is new uh, life, not only that he has been raised with Jesus Christ, but that he is instilled with the Holy Spirit himself, the Spirit of the risen and reigning Lord Jesus Christ. So what is this to do with the dynamic Christian life? Well, if you see what Paul is talking about here, for example, in chapter 2, verse 18 and following, all right? For through him, that is Jesus, we have access, uh, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, uh, in whom the whole structure grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by his Spirit. Paul says the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of the risen and reigning Lord Jesus Christ, dwells in those who are believers, those who have been uh, made alive uh, in Jesus Christ. 
And that's the source of the dynamic Christian life, is the Holy Spirit living in a believer. He is, as Paul says in Romans chapter 1, the spirit of holiness, who has been given to sanctify, purify, make Christians holy, to conform them to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, of course, knowing that, the immediate question becomes, well, how does that happen? Well, that takes us to our text. All of that is the preface, which Paul teaches about what God has done in Jesus Christ in and for the believer, all right? But it brings us to our text. How does that happen? Well, verses 22, 23, and 24. Put off the old self, be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and put on the new self. This is the Bible's teaching about conversion. Now, let me ask you a question and see how influenced you have been by contemporary North American evangelicalism. Where in the Heidelberg Catechism would you expect to find the teaching on conversion? Sin? Salvation? Or gratitude? Salvation, salvation. But I just read that it's in the third part of the Heidelberg Catechism, not the second. Why is it in the third part, not the second? Yeah, close, Greg, yeah. Conversion, all right, at the time of the Reformation, was, was not considered a one-time event where you were brought from death to life. Conversion was a lifelong process. And if you answered the second part of the Heidelberg Catechism, you have been unduly influenced by contemporary North American evangelicalism. That when conversion is mentioned, you immediately think of translation from light, darkness to light, from death to life. But the Bible actually teaches that conversion is a lifelong process. Indeed, that you are to be converted every single day. In Luke chapter 9, verse 23, you don't have to turn there, all right? Paul says, verses 22, 23, 24, put off the old self, be renewed in your minds, put on the new self, all right? In Luke chapter 9, 23, Jesus says, if any man would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. Now, as I've mentioned a million times over the course of my years in this pulpit ministry, the cross that Jesus speaks of there, all right, is not some particular burden which you are expected to carry, whatever that burden may be. People talk about, oh, that's the cross that God has given me. The audience to whom Jesus spoke about the cross would have immediately associated the cross with what it was. It was an instrument of death. It was an instrument of being crucified of being put to death, and it was the most heinous form of torturous death that one could undergo. And yet, no, Jesus says you're to die daily. Well, how do you die more than once? You need to daily die to the old self and put on the new self. That's conversion. That's how the Bible, that's how the reformers talked about conversion. 
They didn't talk about it simply and solely as a one-time event where one was converted when they uh, trust Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, but rather as a lifelong process, a daily process that continues throughout your entire life. Martin Luther said, repentance is life and life is repentance. Every day. Every day. And please note, all right, that repentance, according to the Heidelberg Catechism, is not, all right, only being sorry for sin. 90% of the answers I get from Christians when I ask them, what is repentance? Oh, it's be sorry for sin. Uh, Wrong answer. Listen to the Catechism. To be genuinely sorry for sin, yes, but not only that. And more and more to hate and run away from it. Repentance isn't just an emotional sadness at what you did. Esau wept with tears. Judas went out and wept, but they were not repentant. Repentance is you're going this way, dishonoring, unbelieving, disobeying, and turning around and now serving, following, walking in the word of the Lord. Running away from sin, hating it more and more, and following the Lord, putting on the new self. Get to that in a moment, all right? It is impossible to be united to Jesus Christ, as we stated at the outset, all right, as Paul has taught us in chapters 1 through 3, all right? It's impossible to be united by Christ united with Christ, indwelt by the spirit of holiness, and be indifferent to or negligent of the demand for holiness. The great cause of spiritual lethargy in the church today is that people are not really Christians at all. They profess Christ, maybe, but they do not possess Christ. There's no progress because they never get to the root of the problem of sin in their lives. They have superficial lives because they only deal with the superficial aspects of spirituality. No. You need to deal with the roots of specific sins. Look at verse 22. Put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. That's talking about putting sin to death at a motivational level, deceitful desires. It's not just externally changing behavior. It's not turning over a new leaf. It's not a New Year's resolution. It's putting to death at a motivational level, deceitful desires. You must be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Let's go through the, the catechism's teaching here, all right? A genuine sorrow for sin is not superficial, but a sense of shame. Recognition that sin has degraded us and despoiled God's glory in us. Genuine sorrow humbles one before the throne of God. And there are no yes buts. Uh, yes, I know what God says, but. Yes, I know what the text says, but. 
Yes, I know what's required, but that's not genuine sorrow for sin. Just shut your mouth and confess your guilt and put sin to death. It's right here where many squirm under the reluctance to accept personal responsibility. Listen to me. Repentance begins where blame shifting ends. Oh, the woman you gave me, Lord. Repentance begins where blame shifting ends. If you defend and justify yourself for sin, you will only harden your heart as you resist the Holy Spirit. Catechism goes on, it says, to hate it more and more. To hate it more and more. I submit that if you were to be repentant, you need to taste the real nature of sin. To see it in all its ugliness. To experience the horror of sin as an offense against God. David, when Nathan the prophet came to him and said, You are the man. You may recall in Psalm 51, which was his expression, written expression of repentance, despite all his sin on a horizontal level, in the presence of God, he said, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, O Lord. How do you hate sin? See it as that which sent the Son of God to the cross. As the Holy Spirit exposes the sin of your hearts, observe the wounds in his hands which those sins caused. And the Catechism says not only to be genuinely sorry, to hate it more and more, but to run away from it. To run away from it, you need to see your sin clearly and motivate your heart to run from it. To take it to where you see it in the light of God's wrath against your sin, which is the cross of Jesus Christ. Take your sin to the foot of the cross and see there... What sin cost? The infinite wrath of God raining down on his only begotten son on the cross as the hammer blows of his justice strike his brow and he undergoes the horrors of hell for my sin, for your sin. Then and only then will you run away from it. Take your sin to the cross, to the city of Jerusalem. As the sky grows dark with the clouds of God's anger, as the crowds jeer and mock him hanging there, people reject him and crucify the Lord of glory. Hear his anguished and forlorn cry, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know the answer. Jesus, it was my sin that caused your father to forsake you.
It was my lying. It was my lusting. It was my jealousy. It was my anger. It was my indifference. It was my lack of concern, Jesus. Is the answer to his cry. He's forsaken for your sin and my sin. He bears the full weight of God's wrath, anger, and justice, and the curses of the law which you and I deserve are meted out upon him. See your sin there. Died he for me who caused his pain? For me, who him to death pursued, amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, wouldst die for me? You can't go that far and not want to put sin to death, to hate it, and to run away from it. John Flavel said, grace is to indwelling sin what water is to fire. Only when we turn from looking at our own sin to look at the face of God in Jesus Christ to finding his pardoning grace do we begin to repent. Only when grace appears on the horizon offering forgiveness will the sunshine of God's love melt your hearts and draw you back to him like a moth to a flame. The Apostle Paul correctly states, it's the kindness of God that leads one to repentance. It's not the fear of hell. It's not the guilt and condemnation of sin. It's God's grace, his mercy, his kindness that leads to repentance. It's found only at the cross. Take your sin to the cross and crucify it there. Look at verse 23 in our text. Having put off the old self, understanding what that means, Paul says to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. Notice, to be made new. Not reformation, not changed habits, but transformation, a new heart. As a man thinks in his heart, Proverbs says, so is he. You need to go to the roots of the problem. In Romans 12, Paul puts it this way in verse 2. He says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Significant for any number of reasons. But most significant for this. That worldliness begins in the mind. It begins in your thinking. Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Be made new in the attitude of your minds. I 
I'll deal with this in the 1130 service more extensively, but let me say right now, <clears throat> on what does your mind dwell Monday through Saturday? Grace Slick in the old Jefferson airplane song said, feed your head, feed your head. What are you feeding your head from Monday to Saturday with? What are you feeding it with? What music are you listening to? What visually are you looking at on screens, whether it's computer screen, television screen, or movie screen? How are you feeding your head? Be made new. Because worldliness begins in your mind, in your thinking, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. And then verse 24, put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. The catechism expands and explains this. With two ways. It says, a wholehearted joy in God through Christ. Sorrow and joy go together. Sorrow for sin, joy in God. And then, a delight to live according to the will of God by doing every kind of good work. This is why the Apostle John says, his commands are not burdensome. God is not a cosmic killjoy when he tells you and me how we ought to live, the path to pursue to holiness and to heaven. He's not raining on your parade. He's saying here, here is where blessedness is. Here, here is where happiness is. Here, here, holiness is happiness. Do not be deceived by what they say. You have to put on certain behaviors. Look at verse 28, and this is the character, if you will, of conversion. Actually, verse 25 and following, I'm not going to read the whole thing for the sake of time. When the catechism says, uh, a delight to live according to the will of God, here's how Paul explains living according to the will of God. Look at verse 25. Be angry and do not sin. That's the sixth commandment, right? Um, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor. That's the eighth commandment, right? Um, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. It's the ninth commandment. Paul is simply laying forth the commandments, which are the rule of gratitude, we'll get to that next week, Lord willing, in the catechism, and saying, here's what it is to live according to the will of God. Put off, put on. Put off, put on. Not complicated. Not mysterious. Nothing up my sleeve. Black and white. Ethical exhortations. Clear as day. That's the dynamic, out with the bad, in with the good. 
out with the sin, in with the holiness. Constant daily renewal. Look at the text. Look at the text. Verse 24, created after the likeness of God. I prefer the NIV. In many respects, I prefer the NIV. That's another subject, but it says created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Remember that originally we were created in the image and likeness of God to be like God. Very interesting. We are born imitators. It's innate. It's inherent in our being to imitate. I could probably preach a whole sermon on that, but I'll restrain myself this morning. All right? You're created to be like God. What does it mean to be like God? Well, it's all kinds of mystical ink been spelled on answering that question. I'd submit to you that what it means to be like God, right, is verse 26 through 32. The law, the Ten Commandments, are a reflection of the character of God. And when God says to Israel in Exodus chapter 20, I am your God. We are in a relationship which I initiated by my sovereign grace. There was nothing in you, nothing that you did, which caused me to rescue you, redeem you, save you, purely by my grace. I rescued you out of bondage and slavery in Egypt, and I want you to be like me. What does it mean to be like God? Well, have no other gods before me. Do not worship other gods. Do not take my name in vain. Honor my day. Honor your father and your mother. Do not kill. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not covet. You and I were created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Look at the first verse of chapter 5. Look at the text. Therefore... You know, when you see therefore, it's there for a reason, right? It's the conclusion of a preceding statement, all right? Therefore, all right, he's just told you what it means to be like God. Therefore, look at the text, be imitators of God as dearly loved children. As those who are beneficiaries of the love of God in Christ, as those who are recipients of the blood of Jesus Christ, those who are cleansed, those who are forgiven, those who are reconciled, those who are born again, those who are made new, be imitators of God in true righteousness and holiness. This is what it means to be converted. And to be converted daily. Put off the old self, be renewed in the attitude of your mind, and put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for the very clear direction and instruction of your word. We ask that you would forgive us for our so often shallow spirituality. Rouse us with your spirit, fan into flame a passion for you, to be like you, to love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. For we ask it in Christ's name, amen.
and amen.